Amen. So sometimes I know your listening guide says Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 5. Well, that's not true. So uh, we're just going to deal with verse 1. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just puts the brakes on. And uh, be honest with you, I am so grateful that this moment is here right now because what is inside of me has felt like I've been carrying around a thousand pound boulder for the last three or four days because this needs to be unloaded. I feel like I have a volcano inside of my heart ready to erupt. And my sincere, honest prayer is that you would hear what God has to say to us today. Now, everything God said previously connects to what God says now, which is leading us to what God's going to say in the future. And that's Simple for you to hear, but think of how scary that is from my vantage point. In other words, when God says something, then I, all I know is that that's going somewhere in the future, but I don't know where that's going or how that's going to get there or what that's going to be. Or I just know it's going somewhere, and I'm just along for the ride with you. And so we've said... As we've looked at the book of Ephesians, that it's, it's as if the best way I know to explain this is if we were born into a world that consisted of a room, a house of mirrors, where all we could do is look at the reflection of ourselves to figure out who we are and then, and then take what we see in the mirror and compare it to other people and somehow work this out. And then God comes along. And he flings the window open. And we can, we can peer out this window and we can see this whole reality that's been there. It's not a new reality, but it's new to us because we, we didn't know about it. We thought that where we were was reality. And for, for all of us in the room, You're still there if you're, if you're not saved, but if you're saved, you were there. We were born into this world, and the way we figured out things in the beginning was we looked within ourselves. We looked at our reflection. We looked at ourselves, and we tried to figure out, who am I? What makes me unique? What is it about me? Where do I fit? What am I going to be? And then we, we looked around us at the people around us, and we, we gauged who we are compared to who they are, and we, we found our our, our place or our people or our niche and we we move from this thing to that thing trying to sort this out and then when when that completely wears us out we eventually look up and we try to gain some kind of spiritual gauge to try to help us to to feel some sense of of understanding and it it just simply will not it'll never work that way and what the gospel does it comes along and says that's never going to work when you look out the window the first thing you do is you look up and when you look up first you realize that you've been designed differently you've been defined differently that everything about you is different than you thought and, and looking up changes everything. Then you're placed into a family. And then you look around at, at the people around you. And it's through this community of faith that we begin to, to find our way in this new reality. And then last, we look inside of ourselves. But we live in a world that, that you name all of the things broken in this world. You name all the problems in society right now. And no matter what it is you name, you can trace that back to a people who look in first. That's the genesis of all of it. 
They look inside their heart to find out who they are or what they are, or, and it's a disaster. It will never work. So when Paul comes to chapter 4 and he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, this represents a giant turning point because the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about this window flying open. Paul hasn't said anything to us in three chapters about anything for us to do. And now, walk worthy comes. And so this is a big turning point. But it's also a dangerous moment, which is probably why God wants us to just slow down a minute and make sure we don't, we don't take this first step in this second half of this book wrong and then everything that follows we're off the path that God wants us on because so many people come to chapter 4 verse 1 and they say now here's what Paul is doing he's now going to apply everything he said in the previous three chapters to me that's a problem because It sounds like the weight is now shifting on us to make something happen. That we somehow are going to make the reality that we've been uh, shown through this window of the gospel relevant or real in the world. That could not be further from the truth. Our lives are not the issue. They're not the issue. Jesus is the issue. The entire point of these first three chapters of Ephesians is that our lives are not the issue. Because our lives have been built on a false reality. Jesus is the issue because it's all about what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do in the world. And Paul has helped us to see that. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, everything, every single thing, everything is different. Nothing is the same. That's what the issue is. That we can now look up and we can see what is true and real. We have to make sure that we don't mistake the good news for good advice. It's not. Somehow in American Christianity, whenever it gets to the the application or the ramifications of truth. Whenever we get to the imperative commands of the Bible, somehow we manage to find a way to shift it into good advice. It's not good advice. You see... I want you to think about this. Morality is the point of religion. The typical journey is you, you, you hear the gospel. You're, you come to church. You meet somebody who is a believer or who believes in the, the, uh, the Lord Jesus. And they're living in a way that is different than you're used to. And so you, you hear the gospel, and so you think, well, what I need to do is live in a way that's different than other people, and I need to obey so that I can be more like Jesus. But what happens is it's just simply morality-centered. It's just a rules-based approach to life. And it takes you back 
to looking in. Because how are you going to accomplish this morality? You're going to look in. You're going to try harder. You're going to, you're going to bear down. You're going to buckle in. You're going to, you're going to get, you're going to surround yourself with all these things that are these mechanisms. If I have enough accountability and enough faithfulness and enough disciplines and all these things and I can accomplish this stuff, it's just looking in. It's just a new approach to looking in. It's all about you and your personal improvement. Secondly, inspiration is the point of religion. You look around today and you see a world, a so-called Christian world, where people turn to their faith for relief when they need comfort. Or when they face a great challenge. See, that sounded good to you. That's part of the problem. Again, it's just a look-in approach. Listen. Because it puts us at the center of the story. It turns Jesus into a spiritual guide who just helps us get through the day. See, what happens is, is that it, it becomes, Jesus becomes this break glass in case of emergency. He's there when we need him. What about all the other time? But I want you to think about this. Because you know what we say around here all the time? It's not religion. What is it? It's relationship. But do you really know what that is? Do you really know? What what is a relationship? Describe it in your head right now. Just answer the question, what is a relationship in your head? I want you to think about it. Press yourself. Do you really know what that is? What is the point of a relationship? What is the point? Why? Who are you in a relationship with? And why are you in a relationship with them? Being loved is the point of relationship. That's the point. There's no other reason to be in a relationship. Because see, a relationship based on anything else is a false relationship. You see, it's not a, if, if, I'm in a, if I'm in a so-called relationship with you because you make my life better, that's not a relationship. If I'm in a relationship with you because you aid me or help me or whatever the case may be, that's a false relationship. The only reason... Real reason to be in a real relationship is to be loved. And do you know why you're in real relationships? Or maybe one. I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning and you can't, you're, you're thinking, I don't even know if I'm in any real relationships. But do you know why you long for that? Because we were made for it. All of us desire to be loved. That's why we enter into relationships. That's the point. And so what has Ephesians taught us in the first three chapters? About being loved. See, the essence of a relationship, if you're in a genuine, true relationship, it's about being loved. And do you know what is the core component? What is the central ingredient in love? It's trust. 
Where there's no trust, there's no love. In your life, just like in my life, we've all said at one point in time, I love you, I just don't trust you. That is a lie. It's a lie. It's impossible. It is not true. You do not know what love is. But when we genuinely know that someone loves us, do you know what automatically is present there? Trust. Do you know who you genuinely trust? The people that you believe genuinely love you. They're inseparable. So let's take a little journey together. Through these first three chapters. Here's what God's told us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Therefore. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And predestined us for adoption. Therefore. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Therefore, we have obtained an inheritance which has made our future secure. Therefore, God is making known to us the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe power that is exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Therefore, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places therefore Christ who is our peace has made us all new therefore through him we have access in one spirit to the father therefore we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord therefore We're being strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Therefore, Christ has come to dwell in our hearts through faith. Therefore, we are being made strong to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, We are being filled up to all the fullness of God. Therefore, God is now able to do more abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Therefore, I urge you. You see, chapter 4 verse 1 doesn't just drop out of the sky. It's built on a foundation from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 that have led us to a place to even be able to hear these words. Therefore, I urge you to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is saying realizing What is taking place. Now that you have clarity on what is true. And real. Don't just keep the key in your pocket. Get the key out. Open the door and enter in. He's saying we now live in a new universe where his spirit is in us working in every dimension of our existence 
He's not there for us when we need him. He's always there for us. See, to say that, well, God's there for me when I need him is belittling to God. He didn't put his spirit in you so that you could call upon him when you need him. He put his spirit in you so that every single moment of your life, he's working in you. He's available to you. Whether you're calling upon him or not calling upon him, he's leading you and guiding you. He's active. His work in us is not based on our understanding of our need for him. That's self-predicated. That's looking in. We used to walk in a world shaped by looking in. But no more. It's a whole new world. That's now been remade because the gospel has arrived. We see now what we couldn't see before. So when Paul urges us to walk, what is that? It's an invitation. Walk out of our false lives into what is made true. Now listen, don't let the phrase walk worthy weigh you down. Because that would be a a tragic misunderstanding of what's going on here. The reason we had to walk through all those therefores is because in every one of those therefores, you know what you didn't see? You didn't see anything about you. There wasn't one word about you. So don't you dare make Ephesians 4, 1 about you. Don't let that weigh you down. When you hear walk worthy, you, do, you, do you feel like, let me explain something to you. You'll never be worthy. Never. You'll never measure up, ever. The word worthy is not about measuring up or achieving some kind of spiritual capacity. Write in your Bible over the word worthy to bring into balance. That's the exact translation of that word, to bring into balance. So think of it this way. Something is worthy because it fits. If you're working on a puzzle, when you find a piece of the puzzle and you put it in its spot and it fits perfectly in there, that piece is worthy for that hole. You understand? That's what that means. Walk in a manner, a manner worthy of your calling. It means to walk in a way that fits the calling. What is the calling? What we just said, therefore, 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 for three chapters. So understand something. Worthy is not about measuring up. It's about fitting together what belongs. You see... We don't need to measure up to this new reality because that will never happen. That's what the whole reality is freeing us from. We need to wake up to it. Paul's not saying measure up. He's saying wake up. The great lie of our time 
is that somehow so many people are so deceived into believing that we can be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we can be made alive in Christ, that we can be seated with him in the heavenly places, that we can be filled to the fullness of God, and we can keep living the same way. And even though it's utterly illogical, and it sounds preposterous when I say it, There's no doubt many of you in the room that believe that. You make excuses for yourself. You make excuses for people that you love, that you hope what's obviously true, you try to convince yourself is not true. Paul is saying, he is saying something. Well, what is he saying? Walk in a brand new way. In a way that fits with what is real and true and been done for you. Think about John chapter 3. Jesus is having a conversation with a spiritual leader. This man, Nicodemus, who has devoted his life to following God and studying God and obeying God. He's the epitome of success. When you look in first, and then you look around, and then you look up. See, some people can excel at that for a while, but it won't last. And so, here he is. Come to Jesus at night. And the Bible says this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we, it's just him and Jesus. You got, who's in your pocket? We, me and my people, see, that I look around, me and my tribe, we know that you are a teacher come from God, that no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Hmm. And the answer is so shocking that Jesus gives. The problem with it is it's just familiar. But it ought to shock you. He answers him and says, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, here's what, here's what I mean. Wait, what? You're, the, this guy who is radically devoted to God. To hear Jesus say, you have no spiritual life whatsoever. None. Zero. Zilch. You are dead. You're a walking corpse. If you knew Nicodemus, you would be stunned by that. Some of you in this room may one day hear that same thing and may be stunned, but it'll be too late. Here's what's clear about this interaction in John chapter 3. It is possible, isn't it, that religion can be used To camouflage isolation from God. Oh yes, that's what Nicodemus shows us. You can go to church or mass every day of the week. And you can hear religion telling you that you're okay with God. You can look inside yourself and tell yourself all the things you want about how, well, at least I'm not like them, or I'm better than this one, or I don't do this, or I don't do that, or whatever it is. But in reality, all you're doing is tickling your ears and telling yourself what you want to be true the whole time. 
the reality that we're not at all okay with God. In fact, we're totally separated from him. Being born again is not a spiritual makeover. It's not about being religious or adopting spiritual activities. It is a supernatural event that cannot in any way, shape, or form be explained by the old way of thinking. And here's why we know that. It's because, do you know what Jesus says to him next? Look at this. Jesus then says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Why would Jesus say that? What is he talking about? See, when we create this idea, notice the wind blows where? Where it wishes. What's Jesus' point? You don't control the wind. You don't have anything to say about the wind. Your input is pointless about the wind. Your ideas, irrelevant. Means nothing. The wind does whatever the wind wants and there's nothing you or I can do about it, right? Yes. So when we create this idea that born-again Christians' lives look like non-Christians' lives. See, Jesus makes the point about the wind that you can't control it. You can't see it. But you know it's there because you can see the effect of it. So if you're born again, we can see the effect of it. We can't control it. We can't contain it. We can't manipulate it, but we can see the effect of it. When we try to act like you can live the same way and be born again, you're blaspheming God. You're saying that God is able to deliver you out of hell, but he's not able to deliver you from the sin that you face in your daily lives? We're saying that God is able to pay the ultimate price, handle the ultimate effect of our sin, but he doesn't have the power to give us victory day by day? What? What? That's a lie. See, there's always two characteristics embedded in this lie. Always two. And here's what they are. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that I'm going to heaven. Neither of these two things in and of themselves constitute what the Bible teaches about what it means to be born again. Saying that you believe in Jesus and saying that you're going to heaven. Who doesn't believe in Jesus? The demons believe. Jesus, when he says this, in James chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believe, at least they tremble. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to a group of atheists. 
He's talking to church-going people who profess to believe in God. He's talking to the multitudes of world-loving, lukewarm, church-going people who believe in Jesus. He's talking to the person who is abusive to their spouse and says they're going to heaven. He's talking to the person who cheats at work and says they're going to heaven. He's talking to unmarried couples sleeping together who believe in Jesus. Multitudes of church attenders believe in Jesus, but they've never been born again because you can't see the wind blowing in their lives. They still do the same things they used to do. What's changed? You see, if you, if you hear somehow that it, it brings us to being born again, brings us to some point of perfectionism, no. Listen, born again people can still do things they used to do, but they don't look anything like the way they used to look when they do them. Because it devastates them. It shatters them. It destroys us. But when you just keep doing them. And you just keep telling yourself. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. See, being born again, this whole idea of looking out the window and seeing the gospel, what what it shows us is that before the gospel redefines us, it redesigns us. See, it's not that we look out the window and we go, wow, look at this new reality. Now I know who I am. No. 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 When you look out the window for the first time, the first thing you realize is, this is what I was made for. Because what I see when I look out the window is worthy It fits in the hole that exists in me. Before something happens in us, something happens to us. So what does this look like? Because this is the great danger of this morning. Right at this moment, right here is where I stopped and realized... How many people in this room right now are utterly, you're just confused. You really don't even know what I'm talking about right now. Maybe you're willfully deceived or maybe you're just confused. And so you would walk out of here, if I ended right now, you'd walk out of here and not even get what I've been talking about. What does it look like practically? Let me help you. You become familiar with Jesus, having seen the transformation that happens to people who orient their lives around him. You feel an inner stirring of conviction that brings about sorrow over the ways you've contributed to the mess of your life. 
you see the selfish impulses at work in your heart. No matter how many times you try and try and try to do things right or to become a better person or to make the world a better place or to make people around you happy or whatever it is you're trying to do, you just keep failing. You sense that there's a moral standard outside of yourself that you constantly fall short of. You can't escape the feeling of disappointing God. Eventually, despair sets in. The feeling that you may never be able to escape your worst impulses. This feeling that no matter how many times you change your mind or change your image or try to redesign or redefine yourself, it doesn't work. You keep running around in circles and you never experience lasting change. It is right here at that moment When you get to the point where you realize you don't have anything left to offer but empty hands. You look down deep inside and all you see is cavern after cavern of competing desires and destructive ways. That just keep leading you further and further astray. You look back at your life and you feel sorrowful for the ways that you've hurt people around you. And especially how you've hurt the heart of God. And in the darkness of that grief at the bottom of that pit. For the very first time. You look up. And in that supernatural moment, you're freed from the prison of your heart and your eyes are open to see how God, the one who has every right to judge you for going your own way, has stretched out his arms to rescue you and bring you up out of this pit that Jesus has done all of this for you. It all begins to make sense. It is his unmistakable and beautiful love for you that makes all the difference. You finally stop looking in for salvation and you start looking up. You see, new life takes place. When you come to the end of yourself... You no longer look inside yourself to find yourself or change yourself. You look up to define your destiny. You look up in dependence and trust. You look up to God to see who you were meant to be. You look to God to discover how to live. What makes new life so powerful, listen, is not its newness. New life isn't great because it's new. New life is great because it's better. Tons of things are new, but they're not better. We live in a world that thinks everything new is better, but it's not. But this is. See, the game changer, what happens is something revolutionary happens inside of you. And you no longer have to, have to force yourself or urge yourself or press yourself. You know why? Because it's better. The commands of God are not cumbersome to born-again people. 
When you're born again, you realize that inside every command not to do something is an invitation to do something better. Don't you see? It's a new universe. You literally are walking in the same world, but it's a new universe. You don't hear things the same. You don't think things the same. It's not the same. Relationship is infinitely better than religion. I want you to think about something with me. Why did God even make you in the first place? What's the point? Why did he create you? What did he create you for? And you would say, probably to be in relationship with him. But that's too narrow. What does that mean? Let me tell you something. When you read the Bible with born-again eyes, you realize that you have been created by God. As soon as I looked out the window, do you know what I first realized? The first thing was not, not my, my new definition. No, the first thing I realized when I looked out the window was I was made to be loved and to give love. But I can't give love until I am loved. I was made to be loved and then to give love. Now, if you think about it, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest of all commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's telling you what you were made for. You can't love God if Ephesians taught us anything. You cannot love God until you know how much God loves you. That's what we exist for. See, when we know someone loves us, we trust them, don't we? And the foundation of true relationship is trust. So we could say then that the more I know God loves me, the more I trust him. And the more I trust him, the deeper I go in relationship with him. See, what I love has changed because of how he loves me. I picture this moment where we're sitting in here and people that I love Are sitting in this room and they're 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 clenched up and and fraught with 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 conviction and and struggle and and they wanna they wanna stop loving the wrong things. And you're like, God, help me stop loving the wrong things. And you just keep doing all of these. You keep looking inside and looking inside and looking inside and looking, trying to figure out if you can just figure this mystery out. But listen, none of the puzzle pieces that you find when you look inside will, are worthy for that slot. You have to look up. How many churches this morning what about this church 
What if Jesus were standing outside in the parking lot right in front of this building right now? We're all in here and he's standing out there. Tears running down his face. Look at him. Look at him. Like sheep without a shepherd. Let's stand. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. There's nothing we need to do right now except listen to you. We hear you, Lord. We hear you. We look up. Freedom comes. Revolution. People abandon us, reject us, persecute us. Doesn't matter. You're so much better. Once you give us a new heart, all we crave is more of you. Suddenly everything makes sense, yet it's still so confusing. So we obey what we hear today. Thank you.